Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. certainly had no way of guessing what was going through his mind at the moment, for his face betrayed no sign of the struggle that raged within him. Christopher Daniels, professor of English, was striving to reach a decision, a very important decision. At this moment, he had reached the crossroads. He had a choice to make. He could go on living his own dull life, or a new life, the life of another man. Mr. Neil Baldwin. A man whose name was now being called over the public address system. Mr. Neil Baldwin, please report to the reservation desk immediately. Mr. Baldwin, please. Suddenly, Christopher Daniels shivered. This unbelievable, unexpected chance had come so suddenly it almost seemed like a dream. Yes, a dream which had reached its climax that afternoon in his room at the hotel. Perhaps it had really started this morning at his home in New Haven. That unpleasant scene with his wife, Blanche. He'd forgotten what had brought it all on. Money, his job, didn't matter really. The scenes with Blanche always ended the same way. Blanche, please. We've been over all this time and time again now. Yes. Yes, we have, Chris. And what good has it done? You never think of me, really. What I gave up to marry you. I know. I could have had a lot of things, Chris, but no. No, I had to marry an unambitious English professor. Blanche. A professor who writes second-rate poetry on the side. That's enough. Is it? Every time I've suggested that you give up this this dreary little job of... Blanche, leave me alone. Please. Yes, Chris. Perhaps it was then the bad dream had started. That unpleasant scene with Blanche, like so many that had gone on before. Scenes that left you empty, miserable, sitting in your study oblivious to everything except the vague wish you usually had at times like this, that things would somehow straighten themselves out. You hadn't heard the doorbell. And then you saw Blanche and your old friend, Neil Baldwin, standing in front of you. (laughs) Hello, Chris. Neil! This is a surprise. How are you? Fine, fine. Well, it's good to see you again, Neil. Sit down. Come on, sit down. Thank you, but just for a few minutes. Well, let me see now. I haven't seen you since the class reunion, have I? No, no, I guess you haven't. What are you doing down here in New Haven, Neil? 
What's wrong with New Haven? <laughs> Nothing. <laughs> Chris thinks it's the world's most fascinating metropolis. Oh, Blanche. Actually, oh. we've practically been neighbors for quite a while. Oh. I've been working back and forth between here and Boston for an investment house. And in fact, I had an apartment just a few blocks away. I forgot to tell you, Chris, I ran into Neil about six months ago on the street. I told him we both love a visit with him. Oh, you should have known that anyway. Chris, I did. It wasn't that I didn't want to see you. I've, I've been busy. Now I'm just stopping in to say goodbye. Goodbye? Yeah. I haven't seen you in nearly a year, and you're saying goodbye? Where are you going? Well, New York right now, and then South America. South America? Oh, that's wonderful, Neil. Business trip? No, Chris. No, I guess my business days are over. I had a talk with my doctor last month, and it's either take it easy or else. So, I'm going to take what little money I've saved, go down to South America where I don't know a soul, and loaf the rest of my life. Well, I'm sorry to hear about your health, Neil, but the trip sounds wonderful. When are you leaving? Plane leaves late this afternoon. A sudden impulse, wasn't it, Chris? Perhaps you hoped that would straighten things out between you and Blanche, just getting away from her overnight. Quickly, you run upstairs to throw a few things in your bag. And later, as you're driving Neil down the coast toward New York. Cigarette, Chris? No. Oh, thanks. Uh, well, how things been going for you, Chris? Oh, pretty well. Pretty well. Hey, look, old man, I know it's none of my business, but, you know, you seem quite worried. Worried? Well, no, I'm not worried. Not really, I guess. Not really. <laughs> You can't very well tell Neil the truth, can you, Chris? Tell him that you and Blanche are unhappy. That you haven't done anything about it because you're sure she needs you. No, you can't tell Neil you'd like to call it off. Because you hardly dare tell yourself. Later, after you park your car in the garage and check in at the New York Hotel, you leave Neil stretched out comfortably on your bed. Cigarette smoke curling from his nostrils. You go on to the quaint little restaurant in the village. But that doesn't seem to help. You sit there, hardly touching the food or the wine. Finally, you leave, drive back to the hotel, park your car, and start down the block with Neil's briefcase tucked under your arm. It isn't until you're almost to the hotel entrance you notice the white ambulance driving away, the excited crowd milling about her. The policeman keeping them back. Here, here, here. Where are you going? Out oh, to my room. I... Well, what's the matter, officer? Uh, there's been a fire upstairs in the hotel. A fire? Where was it? Seventh floor. Seventh floor? That's right. Lieutenant said a man went to sleep while smoking in bed. He's dead. All right, folks. Now, let's clear the entrance. Come on, come smoking on, Smoking in bed and he's, he's dead? Uh, officer? Huh? Who was it? Huh? I, I... Well, who was he? The, the, the man who... Oh, well, the clerk said it was a man named Daniels. Christopher Daniels. What? Just checked it a couple of hours ago. It's a terrible shock, isn't it, Chris? Your friend, Neil Baldwin, burned to death in your hotel room. And you stand in the street with Neil's briefcase under your arm, staring emptily at the window on the seventh floor. They all think you were dead, don't they, Chris? Yes. Christopher Daniels no longer exists. Somehow you find your way back to your car. You remember opening the briefcase, looking at the papers. The ticket is for Bermuda instead of South America. Bermuda, flight 11. And you have Neil's papers, his luggage. A reservation at the Crystal Beach Hotel. And there's something else, too. An envelope with money in it. A lot of money. Mr. Neil Baldwin, please report to the reservation desk immediately. Mr. Baldwin, please. The next thing you know, you're at the airport, standing in the waiting room by the magazine counter. Flight 11, leaving for Bermuda. All aboard, please. Mr. Neil Baldwin, please report to the reservation desk immediately. Mr. Baldwin, please. please. Your name, sir? What? Your name, please. Baldwin. Neil Baldwin. 
It's a long way from New Haven to Bermuda, isn't it, Chris? And it's too late to turn back. And now you don't want to turn back. No, you've managed to put your past out of your mind. With the help of Dorothy Gilbert. Yes. It was on the plane trip to Bermuda that you met her. And the two of you hit it off right from the start. You sensed instinctively that the two of you had a lot in common. You felt a pleasant glow and she smiled. Finally, there's the arrival itself. The beautiful green island of Bermuda, looming up in a turquoise sea. You check in at the Crystal Beach Hotel, register as Neil Baldwin. And later, in one of the quaint horse-drawn surreys, you ride over to Belmont Manor, where Dorothy is staying. You're excited, aren't you, Chris? Like a schoolboy on his first date. Hi. I didn't expect to see you so soon. <laughs> I couldn't wait, Dorothy. You ready? All right, I'd love to. Then come along. My my carriage awaits without. <laughs> Neil. Hmm? Oh, yes, that's me. I was just thinking. I can see already I'd like to stay on here a lot longer than a three-week vacation. I think I'd like to stay here for a long time, Neil. So would I, Dorothy. Long time. It was like a faint discord. A cloud passing over the sun when she called you Neil, wasn't it, Chris? Seemed so unnatural. It made you realize you were really Chris Daniels from New Haven, an English professor with a wife named Blanche. Yes, for a moment, Blanche is back in your mind, but it's only for a moment. She fades out again, and you're busy showing Dorothy Crystal Beach, the pink sands, making plans for the future. That evening, you're dancing at the Ace of Clubs. Wonderful idea. Come here, Neil. You like it? Really? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Love it. Mm-hmm. Why didn't you tell me you'd dance like this? Oh. <laughs> I guess I didn't know I could. <laughs> Neil? Hmm? Do you know that man over there? Near the bar? Man? Hmm? Which one? The short, heavy set man. He seems to be looking at us. Huh. And I don't know him. Neither do I. Well, he's probably not looking at us. He's looking at you, Dorothy. I don't blame him. You're talking mighty pretty, mister. Maybe that's because you're so pretty, miss. Oh, Neil. You are, Dorothy. In fact, you're beautiful. I'm glad you think I am. Well, Chris, there's no doubt in your mind about what's happening to you and Dorothy, is there? It's all very simple. You're certain she's in love with you, and you're in love with her. Yes, for the first time in your life, you're in love. But the cloud's over the sun again. This time it won't go away. This whole thing is unfair, isn't it? Unfair to Dorothy. Unfair to Blanche. Now you've got to make another decision. You're still thinking about it as you take Dorothy back to Belmont Manor and return to your hotel. Then as you walk into the lobby, the desk clerk gives you something else to think about. uh, Mr. Baldwin, Mr. Baldwin. Uh, Yes, yes, what is it? A message for you, sir. Came while you were out. A message? Telephone call from New York. I took it myself. It was from your wife, Mrs. Baldwin. Said to expect her sometime within the next few days. You hadn't counted on anything like this, had you, Chris? Neil had never mentioned his wife to you. You had no idea he was married, but you're not too surprised. Neil was always close-mouthed, seldom talking about himself. Yet it does seem strange he didn't mention his wife, doesn't it? But now it's past wondering about. Neil is dead, and you're using his name. And Mrs. Baldwin will be arriving in a few days. You're trembling as you turn away from the desk clerk and start for the stairs. And then... Oh, Mr. Baldwin, uh, one more thing. Yes? I almost forgot to tell you. 
There was a man here early in the evening asking about you. Oh, well, what did he want? Well, he didn't say. I thought you'd gone over to the Ace of Clubs, so what I... What did he look like? Oh, wore a blue suit, rather short, heavy set man, as I remember. Yes, Chris, it's the short man again. The man who was staring at you tonight when you were dancing with Dorothy at the Ace of Clubs. You're certain he's following you, aren't you? Perhaps he's from the police. And you wonder if he knows the truth about you. Well, hurry up to your room. There's little sleep for you that night. Pressure is building, isn't it, Chris? And the strain on you begins to show the next evening at dinner. Neil, what's the matter? The matter? Mm-hmm. Nothing, Dorothy. Yes, there is. All evening you've been acting so... Oh, so strangely. You look worried. What is it, Neil? Dorothy, I... Now, you have to trust me. Although you've no reason to, I must admit... I do trust you, Neil, and I've got a good reason to. Being in love with you is a good reason. Let's get out of here, Dorothy. All right. Neil. Hmm? There's that short man again at the table near the wall. He seems to be... Don't look around, Dorothy. Just keep walking. Yes, Neil, of course. But if you don't mind, I think I'd better take you back to your hotel. Neil, that man. Huh? Is he what's bothering you? Well, he's he's part of it. He's been following you, hasn't he? Uh, Are you in trouble, Neil? Yes, Dorothy. I'm in trouble. You take Dorothy back to the Belmont Manor and leave her with that hurt, puzzled look in her eyes. The look you'd give anything to smooth away. Then you go back to your hotel. And as you enter the lobby, the desk clerk calls to you. Oh, Mr. Baldwin. Yes? There was another telephone call for you an hour ago from New York. New York? Yes, sir. From Mrs. Baldwin. What did she say? Well, she was able to get plane reservations. She'll arrive at the airport tomorrow morning, 8.30. You run blindly out of the hotel into the night. Finally, you find yourself on the road leading to the Belmont Manor. Yes, the Belmont Manor and Dorothy. Because you've finally made your decision. You've decided to tell Dorothy everything. And you do. Your life with Blanche, your unhappiness, the madness that seized you when you discovered Neil was dead and that everyone thought it was you. How you struggle with your conscience and how your conscience finally won. Yes, you pour out the whole agonizing story to Dorothy there on the beach. And the sun has come up before you finish. Chris. Ah, I like the name much better than Neil. It it suits you more, darling. I'm going back to Blanche, Dorothy. I should have known I couldn't leave her. I know. You're just not built that way. I guess that's why I feel as I do towards you. It isn't that I want to. It's just that... But I know she needs me. Of course she does. And don't worry about it. Well... Just remember how nice everything was for a little while. Things we want, we just can't have. Why did I have to hurt you, though? You didn't hurt me, Chris. I... When... When are you leaving? Right away, I guess. I, um... <laughs> I don't know how I stand with the law. I'll find out when I get back, I suppose. I don't think I've done anything criminal. I've just been a, a fool. What about Mrs. Baldwin? I don't know, Dorothy. When I get back to my room, I'll write her a letter telling what's happened and leave Neil's money and papers with it for her. It's not exactly that brave thing to do, I suppose, but I just can't face her. Well, Chris, I, I guess you better be going. Yes. Dorothy, I can't ask you to forget or forgive. Too much has happened, I know, but I hope that... Well, time... Time, will... yes. Time will help a lot, Chris. It always does with everyone. And someday, who knows, perhaps things will be different. Oh, Dorothy, I... I do love you, Dorothy. I always will. I know you do. Goodbye, darling. It's all 
over now, isn't it, Chris? And there's nothing left to do but go back to your hotel, write the note to leave for Neil's wife, and then buy your ticket back to the United States, back to New Haven and Blanche. But it's not as easy as it sounds, is it? Writing the letter to Mrs. Baldwin is not easy. There's a lot of explaining to do. You're so engrossed in the letter that you don't hear the door behind you close softly. You don't see the short, heavy-set man walk silently across the room and stand looking over your shoulder. Hello. Huh? What are you writing, the confession? Who are you? What do you want? I'm Jim Mason, private detective, and I think you know what I want. You and I are going to have a nice long talk, brother, because right now you're looking an awful lot of trouble right in the eye. Chris, they finally caught up with you. Your little adventure is at an end. Your first decision to use Neil's name, run away from home, was a bad one, wasn't it? And your second decision to go back. Looks like you made that one a little too late. Because now no one will ever believe you really were going back. There's only one thing to do. One thing you know how to do. And that's to tell Mason the whole story just as you told it to Dorothy. And that's what you do. You give Mason the whole story. It's sort of a wild tale, ain't it, mister? I know it must sound so, but... You, uh, uh you can prove you're not Neil Baldwin? Oh, yes, yes, of course well, I can. Well, then you're a lucky guy. Lucky? Huh. That dough Baldwin had, that 12000 he told you he saved up to retire on? Yeah. He embezzled that from the company he worked for. They sent me down here after him. Hey, you still have the dough? Yes, it's over there in the briefcase. Uh, I haven't touched it except for what I've spent since I've been here, which I can replace. Yeah, you are a lucky guy. Getting a dough back's all the company's interested in. So far as I'm concerned, you can go your way. Oh, thanks. Now, what are you going to do? Go back? Yes. It's the only decent thing I can do. Uh, well, you're not quite out of the woods yet. Oh, I guess you are if Mrs. Baldwin backs up your story that you're not Neil Baldwin. Wait a minute, she's right outside. All right, Mrs. Baldwin, you come on in now. Neil, darling, why didn't you meet me at the airport? I... Chris. Blanche. But I thought you... I thought you were... I was what, Blanche? I thought... You thought that I died in that hotel fire instead of Neil. You thought he'd be here waiting for you with the money he stole. Now, you had it all planned, didn't you? You, you knew he stole it, didn't you, Blanche? Yes, Yes, but... You've been meeting him for a long time, haven't you? Well, I... And, and all the time, I was torturing myself, thinking that you needed me. Oh, Chris, we... Our life was so drab, I, I couldn't help it. I wanted to travel, enjoy living. Neil offered me these things. So you decided to run out on me and meet Neil down here on stolen money? Oh, it wouldn't have been running out on you. You would have been happier, too. You, you could have gotten a divorce, possibly found someone you would have been happier with later on. Yes. Yes, that's true, isn't it? <laughs> you know, your coming down here to meet Neil kept me from making an awful mistake. Losing something that means more to me than anything in the world. I, I don't understand. You don't have to, Blanche. It doesn't concern you anymore. Just me. And someone over at Belmont Manor. I'm going over there right now. Whistler. Listen next week when once again the United States Air Forces in Europe present The Whistler. And now, stay tuned for the mystery program that is unique among all mystery programs. Because even when you know who's guilty, you always receive a startling surprise at the final curtain. In the Signal Oil program, The Whistler.
Signal, the famous go-farther gasoline, invites you to sit back and enjoy another strange story by The Whistler. For extra driving pleasure, the signal to look for is the yellow and black circle sign that identifies signal service stations from Canada to Mexico. And for Sunday evening listening pleasure, the signal to listen for is this whistle that identifies the signal oil program, The Whistler. And I know many things, for I walk by night. I know many strange tales, hidden in the hearts of men and women who have stepped into the shadows. Yes, I know the nameless terrors of which they dare not speak. And now, the Whistler's strange story, Swan Song. The setting for murder can be anywhere. Perhaps it seems more at home in a dark alley or on an isolated side road, or yet in the dingy back room of a cheap honky-tonk. But once murder is in the mind of someone and the dark plan evolved, the setting can be anywhere. It can even take place in a well-lighted, well-appointed apartment in the expensive part of the city, where laughter is mixed with the pleasant talk of four people. Four of the five people in the situation. Two men, two women. The brother of one woman was absent. The other woman, the hostess, rises, moves across the room with a tray of four empty glasses and hums a popular tune. People will say we're in love. A happy hostess with murder on her mind. And one glass requires special attention. Into it, she drops a single white pellet watches it bubble, cloud the contents briefly, and then clear. As she watches, a smile of triumph lights her face, and her thoughts go back to that night a few weeks ago when the idea of murder first crept into her mind, as she was performing at the Swan Club. Don't start collecting things. Give me my rose and my glove. Mona Barrett wasn't a good singer, but she had a style the customers liked. With Mona, it was a living. It bought a few of the things she wanted. And she could meet people who might help her on her way. She usually did the commercial thing, sang straight to her audience. But tonight she looked beyond her audience, to Jeff Williams seated at the bar. And from him across the crowded club to his partner, Charlie Flavot. It was like looking first at night, then day. Jeff, solid and sullen, with eyes only for Mona. Charlie, handsome and ingratiating, with eyes only for the guests of the Swan Club. It wouldn't be hard for Mona to choose between them. It would be very simple. But the choice wasn't hers to make. Not entirely. Her song ended, Mona turned away and started for her dressing room. In a rush, Mona? Oh, oh, Jeff, hello. Yes, I am, sort of. Your song was great. Thanks. Uh, How about a drink? I'm really in a hurry, Jeff. I shouldn't. No time for a husband, huh? Oh, don't start that again, Jeff. I don't like it. Well, I don't like it either, baby. That's the way it seems to be. Last year, there wasn't any Charlie. It was you and me and the club. It was cozy. Charlie's your fault, not mine. I didn't bring him here. <sighs> no, Mona, you didn't. Neither did I. Just shows up. Remember me, Jeff, your old pal Charlie. Kansas City, I'm, I'm your new partner. I'd have thrown him out. And have him go to the cops? Tell him all about the deal I was mixed up back in Kansas City, not me. So you're stuck with him. Well, it's better than Leavenworth, maybe. Oh, it's a great partnership. Charlie takes 60% of the take, and you practically kiss his hand for your 40. Sure, sure, but... Oh, let's skip it, Jeff. Okay, we'll skip it. Well, how about putting on last year's mink, having supper with me? Sorry, Jeff, not tonight. I have other plans. (laughs) 
You do have other plans, Mona. And those plans include Charlie. You're not going to let anything, anyone interfere. You forget Jeff the moment you step into Charlie's new convertible. Listen to his big talk as he heads for the secluded bluffs above the beach highway. Charlie can afford to talk big. He does big things. Makes big money, doesn't he, Mona? And you like that. Once you arrive at the bluffs, he stops talking. And like you, seems to drink in the quiet beauty of the spot. It's lovely here, isn't it, Charlie? Huh? Oh, yes, yeah, yeah. What are you thinking? Oh, I was just thinking this, uh, this would be a great spot for a new club. Use lots of glass, you know, big windows. So when the customers get tired of looking at you or the food we clip them for, they could get a real view. I'm not very flattered. You're not supposed to be, honey. Well, at least I'm glad I fit into your plans, even if it's only to make the ocean look better. Did I say you fit into my plans? No, no, I, I guess you didn't, really. But I want to, Charlie. I want to very much. Yeah, I know. And if you need any convincing... Maybe this will help. Did... Did that help, Charlie? <laughs> that? <laughs> What's so funny? <laughs> oh, you are, honey. You are. You never really thought I'd go for that, did you? <laughs> Stop it. Stop laughing at me. <laughs> Don't ever try that again, You Mona. can't humiliate me like that and get away Take with it. Take it easy. You've been humiliated before. Why, you... Take me home. With pleasure, honey. Just in time, too. In time for what? Oh, didn't I tell you? I have another date. The rage that swells within you is almost more than you can stand, Mona. And you know that someday, somehow... Charlie is going to pay for that insult, turning you down. Yes, he's going to pay, isn't he? Through that night, the following day, the anger you feel for him grows with each minute, each hour. And finally, early in the evening, you find young Brad Roberts talking to Jeff in his office at the Swan Club. Just keep your partner away from Sharon, that's all, Williams. Look, Brad, you better talk to Charlie about this. I'm not his keeper, you know. If you want him to stay away from your sister, you tell him. I already have. And I'll tell him again. But I'm warning you. Look, don't. I got troubles of my own. Oh, oh, come on in. Come on in, Mona. Uh, Brad's just leaving. Hello, Brad. Charlie giving you a bad time? Not for long, Mona. Uh, I don't know what he expects me to do about his sister and Charlie. Uh, look, baby. You know Sharon pretty well. She thinks a lot of you. No, thanks. Let Brad handle his sister. Maybe it wiser up. Tell her to stay away. No. But, uh, there is something you can do about Charlie. Such as? Get rid of him. <laughs> Kick him out. Oh, sure, sure. And I wind up in Leavenworth. Relax. Man. How can I relax the way he's treating you? I, I, I just can't take it anymore, Jeff. Sitting back helpless while he, while he makes a fool of the greatest guy I know. Oh, Mona, honey, oh, baby, I'm look. I'm sorry, Jeff. But really, we, we've we got to get rid of Charlie. We've just got to. Oh, sure. Sure, that's simple. Just tie him up, dump him in the river, huh? Is that it? If I thought we could get away with it, I... Hold it, baby. I won't have any of that rough stuff. Oh, come on now. I'll buy you a drink. You'll feel better. I guess I better pull myself together. I go on in another 20 minutes. You'll skip the first show if you don't feel up no, to No, no, no. I'll, I'll be all right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, it sounds like they're at it again in Charlie's office. Brad and Charlie. Wait, Jeff, listen. Uh, listen, relax. It's just Sharon's money you're after, Flavo. She thinks it's smart to hang around your club, be seen with you. Now look, Junior, look. She's nuts about me and you know it or you wouldn't get so hot about it. I'm through arguing with you, Flavo. Just stay away from Sharon, that's all I've got to say. Nuts. Come on, come on, Mona. Let, let them fight it out. Hmm? Yes, that's a very good idea, Jeff. Let them fight it out. You know something? Brad has a terrible temper. So? So, Charlie just might mess around and get himself killed. Brad would have an out. 
You know, protecting his sister's reputation and all that. Oh, sure. You know all those soft sister juries, huh? If Charlie were dead, that would solve everything. Wouldn't it, Jeff? Tonight's $20 signal gasoline book goes to Carol Van Court of Los Angeles for this limerick. An unhappy driver named Joe never could make his old car go. It used to be comic, but now it's atomic. The signal gas treatment, you know. Signal, signal, signal gasoline. Good car will go far, will go brother gasoline. Tonight's limerick writer may have been a bit over-enthusiastic in suggesting that signal gasoline will make old cars atomic. But we can promise that along with signal's good mileage, you'll enjoy eager, purring power for proud pickup in traffic or smooth, silent sailing down the straightaway. Plus, wide-awake energy for quick cold weather starting. That's because mileage and performance are like birds of a feather. They go together. To get both, next time get signal. The famous Go Farther Gasoline. Yes, Mona. Charlie's death would solve everything, wouldn't it? He stands in everybody's way. It's Charlie against Jeff for the Swan Club. It's Charlie against Brad over his sister Sharon. And you, Mona, Charlie threw you over, laughed in your face. And now he stands between you and the security, the luxuries that Jeff could give you. So Charlie's got to go. You're certain of that. But how, Mona? It's something to think about, isn't it? And consider carefully. Then one evening at the club, you're sitting at the bar when you see Sharon Roberts hurry out of Charlie's office. An angry, determined expression on her face. Sharon! What? Oh, Mona. My, 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 what a stormy look. Feuding again. Charlie's just impossible at times. I can't stand much more of this. Brad, the family on one side, Charlie and his jealous fits on the other. He thinks he owns me. What's happened now? Last night, the family insisted I go out with someone. Show him around town. He's from the East. Our families have known one another for years. Charlie found out, and he's just furious. You know how jealous he is. Now I'll go home, and Brad will start in on me because I came here to see Charlie. Oh, thank heavens I don't have to put up that much much longer. What do you mean? I'm leaving the family, moving out, getting an apartment of my own. Oh? Well, there's some decorating to be done yet. I won't be able to move in for another month. Another month. I'll probably go out of my mind waiting. Well, you can always move in with me in the meantime, if that will help, Penny. You mean that? Why, why, yes. I'm just so fed up with everything, Mona. I... You, you wouldn't mind, really? I'd love to have you. All right. All right, Mona, I'll do it. And thanks. An unexpected development, isn't it, Mona? And you sense that somehow it'll be to your advantage having Sharon close by. That some way you'll be able to use her as you plan to use her brother Brad and Jeff when the time comes to settle the score with Charlie. At the moment, you're not quite certain just how they're going to fit into the scheme of things. That will require a lot of thought, won't it? And in the days that follow, the pattern begins to emerge slowly. The plan, each step, falls into place. But before you make your first move, you've got to patch up things with Charlie. Let him think the incident of a few weeks ago is forgotten. And so, outwardly, there's a noticeable change in your attitude toward Charlie. And then one night, as you finish your song... Wow, nice going, honey. Oh, Charlie, thanks. <laughs> you still a little sore at me, maybe? Oh, no, Charlie, no, I'm all over that. Kind of silly of me acting the way I did the other night. Well, I guess I was a little heavy-handed. No, no, no. I was. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all is forgiven? Well, sure, sure. <laughs> Why not? Life's too short. 
It's done, isn't it, Mona? You've set your plan into motion. Sharon has moved into your apartment with you, and you waste little time in making your next move. You inform Jeff that you're planning a dinner party to take place Sunday night at your apartment when the nightclub is dark. At first, he's reluctant, but finally agrees to be there. And you wonder if he would have accepted your invitation had he known what was really on your mind. That same night, you tell Sharon about the dinner, and your plans are completed the following afternoon after a phone call to Charlie. You're confident now that your scheme won't fail. All you have to do is say something to arouse Charlie's jealousy, get him and Sharon involved in an argument. And yet when the moment comes, the night of your dinner party, you're tense and nervous, because in the back of your mind is the fear that something will go wrong. However, when your guests arrive, the first cocktails have been served, and the four of you settle down to pleasant, relaxed conversation. That confidence returns. Several drinks later, you step into the bedroom, pick up the telephone, and call Sharon's brother. Yes, what is it, Mona? I, uh, I have a message for you, Brad, uh, from Sharon. Oh? Yes, she wants you to meet her at Seymour's restaurant around 8. She seemed quite anxious to talk with you. All right, Mona. Seymour's at 8. Thanks for calling. You smile as you hang up the receiver, Mona. Seymour's on the other side of town. A good hour's drive from your apartment. And you've taken care to prevent a chance visit by Sharon's brother, Brad, having him drop in and upset your plans. Back in your living room with your guest, you watch Sharon closely. Notice the first effects of the sleeping powder you dropped into her glass. And then finally, at just the right moment, you have something very important to inject into the conversation. Oh, by the way, Sharon, someone called for you while you were out this afternoon. Oh? It sounded a lot like that young man who's called a few times before. You know, the one from the East? Oh, it couldn't be. Could it, Sharon? He, uh, he left last night, or so you said. Oh. Well, now, I, I could have been mistaken, Charlie. Uh, I asked if there was any message, and he said no. He was just wondering if you were going to show up. Well, that's strange. I wasn't meeting anyone. Visiting a sick friend, huh? That's where you all uh, were all afternoon, eh, Sharon? Oh, now listen, Charlie. You broke a date with me because you had to go visit a sick friend. If you really must know, I didn't. I changed my mind. Maybe some guy changed it for you. All right, have it your way. Perhaps someone did change my mind. That was all you needed to say, Mona. That little remark about the young man from the east to touch off a quarrel. Quietly, you take Jeff's arm, steer him into the kitchen, and close the door. There you wait nervously, listening to the angry voices in the living room. Finally, the voices die out. There's a long moment of silence as you and Jeff exchange glances. Then the kitchen door opens. Mona. Mona, will you come in here? Something's wrong. Sharon's passed out. What? Passed out? Yes. On three cocktails? Uh, I don't know Jeff, what's the matter uh, run into the bathroom, get a cold oh, cloth. Oh, sure, come on. Here, Charlie, give me a hand, will you? Yes, sure. I'll get a pillow. Okay. You hurry come to on. the couch. Come on now, Jeff. Pick come up on. a small pillow. Then the honey. small revolver from the desk drawer. Come on, honey, snap out. The revolver Brad had given to Sharon on, for her baby. protection when she left home. Charlie. Huh? Uh, what? What do you... What's the idea, Mona? This, Charlie, is the idea. Mona! Mona! What, what's happened? What? Charlie. I told you, Jeff. I couldn't stand to see you pushed around. He's... Uh, he's dead. Yes. Mona, why'd you do it? I told you, darling. What? How do you expect to get away with a thing like this? I have it all planned, every step. Including her? Sharon? That's right. She killed Charlie. She... You're, you're going to pin this on the kid? Oh, well, not officially. She won't get in any trouble. I... I don't follow this. All right, I'll make it all nice and clear to you, Jeff. But in the meantime, let's see what we can do to wake up Sleeping Beauty there. She's in terrible, terrible trouble, darling. She just killed Charlie. We've got to help her out of this mess. We've just got to. It doesn't take much to convince Jeff that he's got to string along with your plan, does it, Mona? There's really nothing else he can do. You wipe the prints from Sharon's revolver, press it into her hand, and let it fall to the floor. And then finally, when she opens her eyes... Oh, oh. What happened? Oh, take it easy, honey. You'll be all right. But what? My gun. 
What's my gun doing here? Sharon, you... You don't remember? Remember? Charlie. Mona, what's wrong with Charlie? Why is he lying there like that? He... He was shot, Sharon. Oh, honey, try to remember. Tell us exactly what happened. You mean you think I... Oh, no, Mona, I didn't. I couldn't have. I'd remember if I'd done it. Wouldn't I? I'm sure you didn't mean to do it, Sharon. But you were here, you and Jeff. We were in the kitchen fixing some drinks, then all of a sudden we heard a shot. Isn't that right, Jeff? Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Oh, no, no, no. We rushed in here. Charlie was on the floor. You standing here with a gun in your hand. Then you... you fainted. Oh, Mona, what am I going to do? Now, just be quiet, Sharon. We'll think of something. I think the best thing to do is call the police. And have it on the front page of every newspaper in the town for six weeks. Sharon, what about your family, your mother? Do you realize what it would mean? Oh, no, no. Oh, take it easy, honey. Look, no one need ever know about this, Sharon. What do you mean? Don't you worry about it anymore, honey. Jeff and I will take care of it. We'll take care of everything. And you do take care of everything, don't you, Mona? Sharon is too upset, shaken to protest. And Jeff takes Charlie's body down the back stairs, carries it to your car, conveniently parked near the rear entrance. The two of you drive out to the edge of town, take a side road, and then stop when you find a clump of bushes. It's all over very quickly, isn't it, Mona? Back in town, Jeff feels the need of a drink. So you stop at a cocktail bar on Wilshire Boulevard before returning to your apartment. <laughs> Hear what the jukebox is playing, Jeff? People will say we're in love. Oh, come on. Don't look so glum, Jeff. It's all over, darling. We're in the clear. Sure, sure. What do you want me to do? Turn handsprings? <laughs> hmm? Jeff, how long do you think we ought to wait? For what? Before we start asking Sharon to pay up or the murder gun with her fingerprints on it goes to the police. Oh, so you figured on that too, huh? Mm-hmm. Ah, suit yourself. You're running this pitch. Yes, that's right, I am. But we're partners now, darling, aren't we? We split 50-50 on everything. Yeah, yeah. It's really turned out swell. I get rid of Charlie, only to wind up with another partner. But I'm not as expensive as Charlie was. No, no. You come cheap. Real cheap. You know, I may kill you someday, Mona. <laughs> I don't think so. You didn't have the nerve to kill Charlie. You won't do anything to me. Not a thing. Did you know that in cooler weather, such as we'll be having during the next several months, your car needs a motor oil that does more than just lubricate? The reason... On short trips around town, your motor seldom develops enough heat to drive off the moisture that condenses in the crankcase. As a result, harmful corrosives often form, which can damage costly motor parts. That's one important reason why Signal brought out Signal Premium Compounded Motor Oil, because it combines scientific compounds with 100% pure paraffin base. This improved type Signal Lubricant does things for your motor that oil alone cannot do. For instance, one compound in Signal Premium prevents destructive corrosion. Another compound actually washes out harmful carbon. And still other compounds help in other ways to keep your motor young. So if you want to keep wear down and performance up during the coming winter months, now is the time to change for the better. Change to Signal Premium Compounded Motor Oil at a Signal service station.
You congratulate yourself, don't you, Mona? As you and Jeff leave the cocktail lounge and drive back to your apartment. Everything went exactly as you planned. Charlie Flavo is dead. And you're certain you've convinced Sharon that she killed him following a quarrel. Shot him with her own revolver. As you arrive at the apartment, you find it in darkness and you wonder where Sharon is. You step inside, turn on the lights, and freeze in sudden terror at what you see. Jeff, look. What's, what's the matter, Mona? What? No. No, it can't be. There in the center of the living room is Charlie Flavot's body. In almost the same position he was before Jeff picked him up and carried him downstairs. I don't like this, Mona. And I'm not sticking around to find out what it's all about. Jeff, wait a minute. Not on your life, sweetheart. I'm getting out. You can't leave me. Look! This was all your idea. You're in this just as much as I am. But you pulled the trigger. Don't forget that. I'm getting out. Just a minute, Jeff. What? I don't think the lieutenant wants you to leave. That's right, Jeff. I wouldn't like it at all. Jeff. Police? Mr. Roberts here and his sister invited us over. Hello, Mona. Brad. Mr. Roberts arrived here this evening just in time to see Jeff here carrying Charlie's body out the back way. He followed the two of you, called us. It was the lieutenant's idea to bring Charlie's body back here, Mona. They figured when you saw it, you'd start talking, and you did. You... You mean you... You heard... That's what? right, Miss Barrett. A nice joint confession going to save us a lot of trouble. But how? How did you... You made a bad mistake, Mona, phoning me to go to Seymour's restaurant to meet Sharon. You see, I spent the entire afternoon with her. That's why I knew there was something wrong with that call. Let that whistle be your signal for the Signal Oil program, The Whistler, each Sunday night at this same time. Brought to you by the Signal Oil Company, marketers of Signal gasoline and motor oil, and fine automotive accessories. Remember, if you would like the fun of having your friends hear a limerick of yours on The Whistler, the address to which to send it is the Signal Oil Company, Los Angeles 55, California. All limericks become the property of the Signal Oil Company, those selected for use on the Whistler will be chosen by our advertising representatives on the basis of humor, suitability, and originality. So, of course, they must be your own composition. Featured in tonight's story were Joan Banks, Mark Lawrence, Gloria Hunter, and Wally Mayer. The Whistler was produced and directed by George W. Allen, with story by Nancy Cleveland. Music by Wilbur Hatch and was transmitted to our troops overseas by the Armed Forces Radio Service. The Whistler is entirely fictional and all characters portrayed on The Whistler are also fictional. Any similarity of names or resemblance to persons living or dead is purely coincidental. Remember at this same time next Sunday, another strange tale by The Whistler. This is Marvin Miller speaking for the Signal Oil Company. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System.